Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hi, I'm Deb Radcliffe, host of SciBeat, at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Many of us from the cyber community um, are working to bring our stories to the masses through fiction. My Breaking Backbones Hacker Trilogy, for example, is an ode to the hackers, cyber cops, vigilantes, and cybersecurity executives I've met during my 30-year career as a cybercrime reporter and thought leader. Another of us is Richard Thiem, an author and professional speaker focused on the deeper implications of technology, religion, and science. I met him decades ago at DevCon after he gave a thought-provoking keynote at a standing room only crowd of more than 3,000. He's written nearly a dozen books and his latest trilogy, Mobius, is his best writing yet. It is a fictionalized account of a regretful spy who finally turns whistleblower on his agency for illegal torture and other crimes based on his work with several real spies in the real world. Like my books, his books are getting five-star reviews, but it seems like the publishing world in Hollywood are closed to new writers and ideas, and we sometimes feel like we're beating our heads against the proverbial brick wall. Why? And what can we do to support more storytelling from our community? In this podcast, Richard and I are joined by Pat Rulo, a host, a host of her own Speak Up Top radio show and the Firebird Book Awards, and she will help us explore these and other difficulties facing indie writers such as ourselves. Pat and I connected when I submitted my books for the Firebird Book Awards, and I learned quickly that she has a true heart for indie writers and even donates her earnings to make life more comfortable for women and children in homeless shelters. Welcome, Pat and Richard. Thank you. So could each of you take a couple minutes just to tell us a little about about yourselves? I think I'd like to start with Pat, since she's sort of the governing third party here between the writers. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I have all kind of backgrounds. I, my whole life has just been an organic journey. I think I plan one thing, but I land in another place. So I can't say that I ever had a plan to do what I'm doing today. But in the short term, um, I had an employee benefits company that was going really well. And my mom then, who was 78 years old, fell, had to go to the hospital to have a shoulder surgery done. And during the uh, operation, was having a heart attack that went undiagnosed for, oh, like nine hours or so. So that kept her in the hospital for another four and a half months, um, throughout which I, I quit my job. I couldn't work because I spent all my time with her, uh, being sure that I was a good patient advocate. And good thing I did, because what got thrown at us was just crazy. Um, so eventually, once I got her out of there, it took about a year later, I felt like I was almost having post-traumatic stress disorder myself, just trying to, you know, all these crazy things would come back to me. And one day I thought, I'm going to just, I just have to write this down just to get it out of me, almost a cathartic uh, situation for myself. And as I was writing it and doing research, 
I realized if this was happening to me, it's obviously happening to other people. So that book morphed into my my book, Speak Up, but Speak Up and Stay Alive, How to Survive a Hospital Stay. And then that just mushroomed into um, speaking events all around the country, working with hospitals to help them with the patient experience. And then it led to radio shows, terrestrial radio shows. And and through that time, I was interviewing a lot of physicians and doctors and nurses and those type of healthcare related people. And many of them wrote books and they were asking me that same question, you know, how do I get my book out there? So as I was interviewing them, I thought, well, maybe I can expand this and extend it into not just healthcare authors, but authors in general. So that's how the Speak Up Talk Radio with the author aspect of it came about. And then meantime, my mom was making pillowcases. She was so disabled. She couldn't really do much else after that hospital experience. And she was just making these beautiful pillowcases with all different colored fabrics. And every day I'd go over it and she'd give me a dozen. I'm like, well, mom, we don't have that many pillows or beds. What are we supposed to do with these? So I contacted Soldiers Angels and worked with them. And we started sending pillowcases to the troops overseas which then just morphed into the homeless shelters once the troops pulled out. And so I decided to tie that with the author interviews, with Speak Up Talk Radio and make it tax deductible. So that's kind of the thumbnail version of how I went from the insurance and financial services field to what I'm doing today. Again, I didn't plan it. It just laid out in front of me and I thought, all right, what am I supposed to get out of this? What shall I do with this bad situation? And you know, like most things, if you can find the little pearl in there, it turns out to be something very much worthwhile. Interesting. A lot of us write from our personal experiences, and yes. you do really well. Richard is writing his Mobius theories, uh, series around experiences he's had with other spies. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Richard? Uh, sure. I really related to what Pat said, because my uh, three careers, I guess you'd say, uh, all fold, folded one into the other very uh, organically and logically. Uh, teaching literature taught me those uh, skills, writing and reading, reading at a deeper level. Uh, and then I went into the Episcopal ministry, uh, which took what I had learned in English literature into a moral realm and made it practical and uh, gave me opportunities to be trained by parish ministry in being a more fully human being which is what I realized it's really about. And then when that became suffocating, when I began to, wanting to talk about what technology was going to do to the world and the society, um, I turned down the jobs I was being offered and left the ministry in order to speak and write full time about IT and its impacts. <clears throat> and that's had a very uh, heavy emphasis on security and intelligence because I keynoted the uh, fourth DEF CON talk for 300 people. Um, and that's where I met not only a lot of the hackers and IT professionals who became the closest friends I've, I've ever had, but people from CIA and NSA and DIA. And, um, and they also became very, very close friends and those things intertwined. Uh, so I worked with them. I listened to them as a clergy type uh, because a lot of people didn't have anyone to talk to about the impact of their work. Uh, trauma, PTSD seems to be a universal condition, especially post COVID for so many of us. 
Uh, and, uh, and I learned an awful lot, but I also worked in those areas. And of course, going all over the world and networking with people uh, the way I do and, and loving it and loving them. Uh, I keynoted uh, secu uh, security conferences in 15 countries. And so I have a network that's global, which during COVID stood me in great stead uh, because that was my network. Uh, and, and so uh, one thing led to another. And then personal events, that is the loss of two of my close friends at NSA, um, made me want to write something about it. And one, I, I won't go into the, all the details, but the bottom line was a, a deputy director at NSA said, uh, Richard, you can't talk about the things we've discussed unless you start writing fiction. Fiction is the only way you can tell the truth. Uh, and he was right. Uh, so Mobius, a memoir, is the fictional memoir of an intelligence professional uh, learning that his pathway, which he initially, as they all do, loved because of the work and the specialness it gave, gave him, uh, led to things he couldn't handle uh, when he was assigned to torture in a black site um, during rendition uh, after 9-11. And so that was the first book. And then I realized when he became a whistleblower, there was a lot more to it. So I wrote the second book, Mobius, uh, uh, Mobius Vector, which came out a few weeks ago. And I am now writing the third, uh, Mobius Out of Time. Uh, I won't go into all the details of how it led, uh, his events led to a, a, a real relationship with a woman um, to whom he could tell the truth. Because as a spy, he couldn't tell the truth to anybody. Uh, and uh, and now I'm writing the third. And uh, apropos of the issue we're discussing, um, yeah, I think the first book has about two dozen incredible reviews. I mean, over the top five star reviews, often from people at DIA, NSA and CIA. I even got an email from uh, an illegal, a KGB illegal here for 10 years until he was busted. Uh, and he said that Mobius is real and surreal the way yeah. you tell the story. Um, there's just great reviews. And the second book is getting good reviews now. I met somebody from NSA just the other day for lunch, and he said, I didn't think you could ever top the first one, but I'm loving the second one even more. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't wait for the third. And yep. that does not translate into sales. Yes. That's the bottom line. Yep. Um, I'm having the same experience, Richard, where... I, first of all, I'm in your second book and I totally get the whole sense of isolation that your lead character has now that he's been a whistleblower. And, right. you know, the fact that he lost someone very close to him and he didn't even know it till he found it in the obituary section. And he was under a different name because he was a spy. So it was like really, you know, he's sensing he has loss on so many levels. It's so deep. And I'm reading it going, okay, so this should be like right up there. Like, I'm having the same issues and there are a lot of indie writers who can't write. I'll give you that. And I'm sure Pat has read some of those books as well. But for those of us who have an audience, who are trained writers, who, you know, I've been writing and make, I raised my kids on a buck of work, three kids. Okay. So I've been a writer my whole life. I know what I'm doing. Um, it's the marketing side that's the hardest. It's the constant churn for a buck a book off of Amazon. Um, and so I've, you know, one of them, and Richard actually printed out a chat GPT thing with instructions on how to market your books. I'm doing everything that was on that list, including entering book awards contests, such as the Fired Bird Book Awards. 
And Pat, you seem like you were almost, a, you know, an, an anomaly in the fact that you got so popular so quick after you wrote your book. How did you do it? And how do you see other writers that like us who uh, you, you clearly knew my book was good. Whoever read it for your awards contest gave them awards for thriller and action adventure. So where do we go? How, how can you dis dissect what goes on with indie writers who actually aren't bad? That is the million dollar question, really. Um, and I get that from so many people. Uh, I did not know what I was doing when I when I wrote this book. I wrote it to get get it out of me. Um, but then when I started to talk about it and bring it out to people um, in the community, they said to me, my mother had this, my father, this happened to my uncle or my whoever. And I started getting invitations to speak. And so it was the speaking invitations that really blew up the sales. Amazon, I mean, I still hardly get anything from Amazon. You're lucky if somebody wanders over and, you know, tend to not leave a review or even buy the book. So I never really did that well with online book sales. But that as soon as I got the book out and started the speaking events, I had 40 speaking events in Arizona within you know, like two months, almost every day I was speaking at different places. And it started out small, um, especially because that was an area where there were older folks. And so all of the senior places and the senior living places, they all invited me to speak. And so that was a great way for me to get the word out. And then they would tell another group and another group. And so that just mushroomed, which then grew into healthcare facilities such as the Cleveland Clinic reached out to me and said, would you be interested in uh, doing a keynote at our, our uh, patient experience summit? And so then that brought in that whole healthcare aspect side. And then I had companies from the healthcare world that were buying books in bulk to hand out to their, you know, their, their employees or those type of things. So yeah, that's how my initial book sales happened. And that then led to radio, which again, I, I didn't have any experience in radio. I was I went to a radio station in a small town in uh, in Arizona and I was having a big event come up and I said, I thought maybe I'd do a 30 second spot so that I could announce to the locals that this was going to be happening. And when I went there to record, I said, did you know that healthcare acquired infections is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And the gal who ran the station ran in and said, she said, we can't, you can't make an ad like that. Wow. I said, I said, well, it's true. She said, I believe you it's true, but we have a hospital who advertises with us and they might not like that. Right. So that was one of those moments I thought, all right, you're telling me I can't do a 30 second spot and tell the truth. I came back to Cleveland where I also have a home here and, um, contacted a local radio station and kind of gave them my pitch. Like, this is what I'm about. This is my book. I'd like to do a radio show. And they put me on the air. So I had a weekend time slot with Salem Media Group. And then they put me in Phoenix and it became syndicated. And so then during the radio show, I would talk about the book and then made the books available. So it was because of the speaking events and the radio that I was able to really mushroom and blow out the book sales. Whereas still Amazon, all during that time, Amazon was fairly flat. 
Plus, you picked a topic that everybody can relate to. You know, there's so many people that relate to, and maybe that's part of the difference between what Richard and I are trying to do. Richard, what were you going to say? I was going to say there are a couple of significant differences. Once, what you one is what what you describe is what I did literally 30 years ago when I began speaking and writing. I created a platform for speaking by writing good stuff and distributing it on the web. It was brand new then. Uh, but it started going to thousands of people, and that provided a floor of credibility because it was really well-written stuff on the impacts of technology, and everybody wanted to know it. That's the key thing. It was nonfiction, and people wanted to know, what what is the Internet? What is cyberspace? What is it going to mean? And I made a living uh, for most of these last 30 years speaking to those issues. The writing was incidental, Um, but you wrote nonfiction. And one of the things I get back from people when I'm speaking about what Mobius involves is I don't want to know that. Well, mm-hmm. what you get back from people is I want to know that. Uh, you're talking to people who are really eager to learn on the basis of their shared experience or empathy right. what, what you're saying. And, it, and it's nonfiction. That's really, you, you can't overemphasize that. Uh, talking to publishers I have been told time and time and time again how much easier it is to uh, reach a publisher about nonfiction uh, than about fiction, because fiction publishers, of which there are ultimately very few, five major publishers doing 80% of the publishing, they want things that fit a niche and is sellable right away. They want blockbusters. They want things that uh, they know they can sell predictably to their predictable audiences. And that's how it's compartmented and categorized. And uh, I have been happy to live life, and I'm going to be 80 at my next birthday, uh, breaking ground. Uh, And you can believe that uh, to write the Mobius book so truthfully Mm -hmm. and be true to the experience of what it means to be an intelligence and deal with the impacts of it is outside of people's experience. And a lot of people don't want to know it. And I'm careful not to reveal sources uh, and, and methods. So so it's really a, a, a challenge right now as the second Mobius came out. And I expected everybody who bought the first book would race out and buy the second. And I didn't. did. Yeah, some did. Okay. Um, but a, a lot of, it's a ser- they're serious works of literature. They're uh, almost have a meta dimension and I know what I'm doing. I uh, This is my uh, 13th book now mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and also, I took a detour, which I won't go into in a lot of detail, into writing and speaking about the UFO phenomena, which now is getting a big cachet. Yep. Because after 75 years of debunking, the government is acknowledging that there's something there. And I have worked with the very best researchers in the field, and we produced an, an incredible book. Um, yeah. But it's it's academic. It's called UFOs in Government. And, and it sold. Uh, I, I was responsible for selling more books than any other venue because I, I've given over 50 speeches on the subject in the book and people buy the book at the speeches, like right. you say. And I've and been I've to some of those. A lot of radio stations and interviews and 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 so on. Uh, but COVID really has been a, uh, a hammer. Yes, uh, especially on speaking events, live yeah, speaking events. Yeah, it's all been by Zoom or local yep. yeah. for three years. 
Yeah. yeah, I haven't even gone back to speaking because, again, my audience is elderly and I don't want to subject them to a crowd where it would be because of me right. that somebody else might contract something. And I find it stunning, um, Richard, that you're saying that people wouldn't want to hear what you have to say. When you were talking about your books, I was thinking, oh, what a great speaking opportunity. Don't you think people would just flock to that subject and really want to find out and know? Well, it's, it's interesting. The intelligence community uh, doesn't want to hear it from what they consider an outsider, uh, as vivid and, and real as, as it was. Uh, I've been in touch with the Spy Museum and Michael Morella, who was deputy director of CIA, and they really don't want anything to do with it because it does tell the truth right. in a way that they don't. And, yes. and the rest of us, too, Richard, in your book, you call the rest of us humplings. And mm -hmm. we don't want to know because it's too scary. We want to think our world operates in a certain way and that there isn't all this subterfuge and, and bad stuff happening in the background under the name of national security or whatever brand they want to put on the things right. they do. Yeah, somebody said that I'm the equivalent of uh, the Roman legions. I'm on the frontier of the empire walking through bloody guts. Uh, to kill people, and most, most people are happy in Rome in the baths and the feasts, and uh, don't people don't want to know um, about that. I was just reading Chelsea Manning's uh, memoir, which is really pretty powerful, because he just wanted to tell people what was true to his experience in Iraq, which is totally opposite what we were being told about Iraq and and subsequently of Afghanistan, and he paid one hell of a penalty. Um, and that's why Mobius became a, a whistleblower, and I could do it in fiction. Mm -hmm. There are things about which I could blow the whistle, and I'm not crazy. Okay, I don't. <laughs> I don't, and most people don't, because the the lesson is what will happen to you if you if you do, and, and it can be quiet. You just don't get jobs. Yeah, you and know? that's book. That's book number two. The lesson is what happens to his key character because he did finally blow the whistle. And yeah. I tried to stay true to the hacker community and the cyber cops. And I had to tell a fictional story because no one's going to read a story about people sitting behind a keyboard all day long. I had to have action and explosions, sure. drone wars. And I was predicting all kinds of stuff in there using current day technology, like book number one published in 2021, a year before the Ukraine war. And it, the first chapter has kamikaze drones in it. So I actually thought I had five, 10 years for the technology to catch up with what I was writing. And actually it's practically passing it up right now. So right. mine came with a time limit and I knew that. And that's why I self-published because what the agents would do was like, first of all, I don't know you. Secondly, I don't really want to talk to any new authors. Thirdly, please don't uh, submit a pitch to me and another agent. And it will take me eight months to get back to you. So one at a time, eight months, eight months, eight months, eight months, get your rejection, start again. By then, the whole story would have been obsolete. So That's correct. That's true of publishing generally. Uh, you, you're going to wait 18 months for a book to be published. Right. If it's accepted and worked through in a, in a proper uh, sequence of events. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to be near, I'm going to be 80 next year. Uh, I don't have 18 months to wait. Uh, <laughs> plus what they take. I mean, you know that if you really go with a publisher and then you go with a, an agent, I am told by professionals that you need an advance for fiction of at least $100,000 or you're not going to make any any money at all. 
mm-hmm. on your on your book. And but what Deb said is absolutely true. And if you have any suggestions, Pat, on how to get around that, publishers will not speak to us. Oh, I, I, I called the indie publisher here in Minneapolis, and they said we cannot afford to pay people to reject the thousands of manuscripts we would be inundated with if we said we will look at unsolicited manuscripts. And it was the same with agents. Uh, they're, they're in this, exactly the same position, except they're almost all young if they're talking to you and yeah. trying to build a list because others won't talk to you. They right. literally won't. I have a friend who had a great agent. I said, can you tell him about me? And he said, the agent told him if he mentions another writer's name, he's done. And he said that to John Grisham, who he handles as well. He said, John, don't bring any of your favorite writers to me. I'm full. I don't want to know any names of writers. I don't have time to look at them any more than a publisher has time to pay people to go through thousands of manuscripts in a slush file, read first and last page, page in the middle and send it back. Right. So, right. so this is the condition of publishing now. That's We get that. It's not personal. It's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And other than trying all of these many, many things, what I did with the chatbot uh, just this afternoon to test it is I took passages from the two books, gave it to it. If I stripped out the name Mobius because it didn't know how to relate that, just mm-hmm. said, summarize these passages and provide tweets based on what you summarize. They're really quite quite good. They're really quite, quite good. So using the chatbots is uh, like having a, a helper. Um, and I'm just trying to in, in explore all of the ingenious and creative ways we can take advantage of uh, this new technology. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. making phone calls doesn't work. Nobody answers the phone. No, they don't. And what you're saying is not unique. Everyone I, I speak with pretty much is in the same situation. And obviously that's why self-publishing, like you said, Deb, you don't have time. I mean, you you spend so much of your um, effort and creativity and time to put into this book. You're not going to wait two years and hope that it something comes of it. You know, this might sound like a strange thing, but maybe we need to sit back and, and reevaluate why it is that we write. I mean, are we writing to make money? Are we writing for the an audience or for the conversation back from the audience? Are we writing for ourselves? Like, what is the purpose? And maybe, maybe we need to reevaluate that or, or come to some different terms or change our perception of maybe why we write. And because if the situation is in fact what it is today and it's so difficult to reach an agent or a publisher, then we need to maybe rethink our approach or or our mental approach to it and about and the why about the why exactly you, why you know, are we doing this yeah on book three i'm like will i submit this up to archway or not because it costs money to self-publish through i do have an indie publisher richard right it's archway and it's a division of simon schuster but each book i put out at minimum is ten thousand dollars. It's thirty five hundred to get it started and get the art done and get it, you know, in all the catalogs. And it's about twenty five hundred to get the copy edit done. And then I always want the audio, which is another four grand. Okay, so I put all that out there, and I'm looking at this one last big expense, and I'm like, why am I doing this? And 
it has shifted from, I have this great story the world needs to hear to, you know, there are these people in our industry who do such amazing things, right, Richard? And this, right. this is just the cyber community. This isn't the spy community. There are hackers that started out in the early days before we ever knew this was going to be a problem. And they're telling us what's going on and they're sharing this stuff with us. And I thought, you know, for me, this has become more of a legacy and mm -hmm. something I want to give to the cyber community so that they can refer to these books to their friends and say, this is what I do. I'm out there fighting this cyber battle every day, you know, and you guys don't get it, but this is told in story form. This could be a TV series, easy. Um, let's just read it. And I have some cyber professionals who are actually handing the books out to their train, their new staff. Mm -hmm. um, to get them excited about their careers and things like that. But that's the, you know, that's where I'm shifting as I go to spend this last big chunk of change. And now I'm putting feelers back out for the work that used to pay me well. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm almost done losing money. Let's go back to making money. We're in a different, uh, I'm in a different situation because I, I, I'm not doing it for money, period. I'm, I, I like it as validation of the value people find in it. But I'm at my stage where we're, we're comfortable and right. work. I do it because as so many writers say, I have to, I have, I have to do it. And I've been writing uh, or speaking all, all my life, but even the best speeches, like, like I gave one last uh, summer, Deb, you know, at DEF CON on UFOs that they requested. Yep. And I saw about 3,100 people have watched it on YouTube and that's in a very short period of time, but every time someone watches it on YouTube, you don't get a quarter. You don't. You don't get the six cents that Spotify gives its uh, its artists. Our, and, and musicians are in the same boat. I mean, this is a sea change caused by the technologies and the restructuring of society, mm. and we saw it coming. But um, I do it because I love to write, but I want to communicate with people, and I love the feedback loops. Um, mm -hmm. That's been true for 30 years, uh, doing right. stuff on the web or on YouTube. I'm engaged with people all over the world, and and I thrive on that. Um, and I want to get better and better, but also I had a hell of a story to tell, which uh, one of the latest interviews, uh, I mean, reviews uh, by Steve Miles, a brilliant, well-known guy. He said, nothing tells the story of what it does to a spy better than this book. Mm -hmm. And he worked with torture, you know, he has for years as a doctor trying to expose what's being done um, with, with torture uh, and bless his heart. Um, it, it's true. Uh, yeah. I understand the value of the book and the quality of the book. I got that. And that's why I'm moving on in, in the trilogy. But it's got to be uh, like creativity itself. It's self-nurturing. When right. I, I was yeah. right until the time we started, right? And today. Yeah. And and there's no more profound experience of a self-nurturing, self-renewing uh, thing to do. Right. Uh, it's a creative process. Yeah. And and it keeps your, you know, it has all kinds of health benefits yeah. uh, on, on top of that. Uh, it's just, what do we do? Um, and what I'm hearing is we're doing everything we know how to do, uh, but it's really, really a tough world. Just like for a garage band, the dreams of, of uh, Hitting it big, and, yep. and uh, there's so, no silver bullet, is there? Yeah. yeah.
So we've got about five minutes left to close this off. Pat, do you have any additional advice for us besides reevaluating the why? Um, anything you want to add? Because you've read so many books. And I do have one more question for you. Out of the books that are submitted for award consideration, how many are fiction and how many are not fiction? What percentage? The, the bulk of them are fiction. Okay. Yeah, the, the bulk of them are fiction. Um, you know, we'll get the self-help and the how-to and and then the memoirs and those type of things. But I, I would say most of them are fiction. Okay. And do you and have any last advice for us? The only other thing I was thinking is that, you know, we don't really know who we touch. I was thinking about the why. I always think about that. We don't know who we touch. We don't know who is reading our work and what it might do for them, how it might change them, how who they're sharing it with. Because people have a tendency not to speak out to you, to say, oh, I read your book. I loved it. It was great. They'll read it and take it. And you never know whose life might change because of reading your book. And sure. so- I that's that that kind of makes me feel satisfied to think maybe there's people out there that I'm helping that I don't know who they are that I'm helping them. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's a job well done. I just think yeah. we need to perhaps instead of struggle and fight against it, especially if you don't need the income um, to kind of create in your own mind a happy feeling of why you're doing this work and be happy that you're doing that and that you can do it and that you're putting it out there to the world rather than worrying about what comes back. Unless of course you're trying to do it obviously to make a living and then you've got to go through all the steps as you mentioned that you have and hope well, you're that- right. Uh, You're hope right, that and my son warned me. Uh, he said, dad, you're starting to sound like these influencers uh, who need more and more likes. And the fact is it's never enough, right. it is never enough. And you become obsessive driven by chasing uh, a, a chimera. Yep. And, and so that that aligns with what you say, too. I, I mean, enough is a feast. You you have to find value in what it is that transpires as a result of your creative, right. creative work. Okay. Um, well, go ahead, Deb. Sorry. I want to thank you both for being here. We could talk for hours on this subject. Maybe we'll do a follow up. But Richard's right. The ultimate message here is technology, which this podcast is supposed to be focused on, really has changed the way society interfaces with authors, the way the authors interface with society, and the way our stories are expressed, sold, marketed, and shared. So um, maybe Richard will live long enough to see this paradigm come to its mm -hmm. conclusion, or maybe it will be going on for another 100 years. But we sure appreciate people like you, Pat, who come in have had a successful first book, have helped the rest of us. And, you know, I've never connected with an awards committee chair as much as I did with you. And I loved our podcast that you and I did together too. And Richard, I've known you for about as long as I've been in the cybercrime reporting business in 30 years. Growing old together, Deb. <laughs> yes, we are. And I sure appreciate you. And you know that a character in my book called Priest, P-R-I-3-S-T, as his hacker handle, is fashioned after you in book one, right? Yeah, so you said. 
you were the hacker priest and he's always been our hacker priest so very interesting people in our world and i want to thank both of you for being here and to the audience i want to thank you for listening in we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybeat podcast with deb radcliffe part of the itsp magazine podcast network If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.